0: Volume One, Chapter One, Part One of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Chapter One The History of the South Pole. Part One Life is a ball in the hands of chance. Brisbane, Queensland. April 13th 1912 here i am sitting in the shade of palms surrounded by the most wonderful vegetation enjoying the most magnificent fruits and writing the history of the south pole what an infinite distance seemed to separate that region from these surroundings and yet it is only four months since my gallant comrades and i reached the coveted spot i write the history of the south pole if any one had hinted a word of anything of the sort four or five years ago, I should have looked upon him as incurably mad, and yet the madman would have been right. One circumstance has followed on the heels of another, and everything has turned out so entirely different from what I had imagined. On December fourteenth, nineteen 1911, five men stood at the southern end of our earth's axis, planted the Norwegian flag there, and named the region after the man for whom they would all gladly have offered their lives, King Haken the Seventh thus the veil was torn aside for all time and one of the greatest of our earth's secrets has ceased to exist since i was one of the five who on that december afternoon took part in this unveiling it has fallen to my lot to write the history of the south pole antarctic exploration is very ancient even before our conception of the earth's form had taken definite shape voyages to the south began it is true that not many of the explorers of those distant times reached what we now understand by the Antarctic regions. But still, the intention and the possibility were there, and justify the name of Antarctic exploration. The motive-force of these undertakings was, as has so often been the case, the hope of gain. Rulers greedy of power saw in their mind's eye an increase of their possessions. Men thirsting for gold dreamed of an unsuspected wealth of the alluring metal. Enthusiastic missionaries rejoiced at the thought of a multitude of lost sheep. The scientifically trained world waited modestly in the background, but they have all had their share—politics, trade, religion, and science. The history of Antarctic discovery may be divided at the outset into two categories. In the first of these I would include the numerous voyagers who, without any definite idea of the form or conditions of the southern hemisphere, set their course toward the south, to make what landfall they could— these need only be mentioned briefly before passing to the second group that of antarctic travellers in the proper sense of the term who with a knowledge of the form of the earth set out across the ocean aiming to strike the antarctic monster in the heart if fortune favoured them we must always remember with gratitude and admiration the first sailors who steered their vessels through storms and mists and increased our knowledge of the lands of ice in the south people of the present day who are so well supplied with information about the most distant parts of the earth and have all our modern means of communication at their command find it difficult to understand the intrepid courage that is implied by the voyages of these men they shape their course toward the dark unknown constantly exposed to being engulfed and destroyed by the vague mysterious dangers that lay in wait for them somewhere in that dim vastness the beginnings were small but by degrees much was won one stretch of country after another was discovered and subjected to the power of man knowledge of the appearance of our globe became ever greater and took more definite shape our gratitude to these first discoverers should be profound and yet even to-day we hear people ask in surprise what is the use of these voyages of exploration what good do they do us little brains i always answer to myself have only room for thoughts of bread and butter the first name on the roll of discovery is that of prince henry of portugal surnamed the navigator who is ever to be remembered as the earliest promoter of geographical research to his efforts was due the first crossing of the equator about fourteen seventy with bartholomew diaz another great step in advance was made sailing from lisbon in fourteen eighty seven he reached algoa bay and without doubt passed the fortieth parallel on his southward voyage vasco da gama's voyage of fourteen ninety seven is too well known to need description After him came men like Cabrel and Vespucci, who increased our knowledge, and de Gonville, who added to the romance of exploration. We then meet with the greatest of the older explorers, Ferdinand Magellan, a Portuguese by birth, though sailing in the service of Spain. Setting out in 1519, he discovered the connection between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, in the strait that bears his name. No one before him had penetrated so far south, to about latitude fifty-two degrees south. One of his ships, the Victoria, accomplished the first circumnavigation of the world, and thus established in the popular mind the fact that the earth was really round. From that time, the idea of the Antarctic regions assumed definite shape. There must be something in the South, whether land or water, the future was to determine. In 1578 we come to the renowned English seaman Sir Francis Drake. Though he was accounted a buccaneer, we owe him honour for the geographical discoveries he made, He rounded Cape Horn and proved that Tierra del Fuego was a great group of islands and not part of an Antarctic continent, as many had thought. The Dutchman, Dirk Gerritz, who took part in a plundering expedition to India in fifteen ninety nine by way of the Straits of Magellan, is said to have been blown out of his course after passing the Straits, and to have found himself in latitude sixty four degrees south, under high land covered with snow. This has been assumed to be the South Shetland Islands, but the account of the voyage is open to doubt. In the seventeenth century we have the discoveries of Tasman, and towards its close English adventurers reported having reached high latitudes in the South Atlantic. The English astronomer royal Halley undertook a scientific voyage to the South in 1699 for the purpose of making magnetic observations, and met with ice in fifty-two degrees south, from which latitude he returned to the north. The Frenchman Bouvet, 1738, was the first to follow the southern ice-pack for any considerable distance. And to bring reports of the immense flat-topped antarctic icebergs in 1756 the spanish trading ship leon came home and reported high snow-covered land in latitude fifty five degrees south to the east of cape horn the probability is that this was what we now know by the name of south georgia the frenchman marion de Fresne discovered in 1772 the marion and crozet islands in the same year Joseph de Kerguilay-Tremarac, another Frenchman, reached Kerguelen land. This concludes the series of expeditions that I have thought it proper to class in the first group. Antarctica, the sixth continent itself, still lay unseen and untrodden, but human courage and intelligence were now actively stirred to lift the veil and reveal the many secrets that were concealed within the Antarctic circle. Captain James Cook, one of the boldest and most capable seamen the world has known, opens the series of Antarctic expeditions, properly so called. The British Admiralty sent him out with orders to discover the great southern continent, or prove that it did not exist. The expedition, consisting of two ships, the Resolution and the Adventure, left Plymouth on July thirteenth, seventeen 1772. After a short stay at Madeira it reached Cape Town on October thirtieth. Here Cook received news of the discovery of Kerguelen and of the Marion and Crozet Islands in the course of his voyage to the south cook passed three hundred miles to the south of the land reported by bouvet and thereby established the fact that the land in question if it existed was not continuous with the great southern continent on january seventeenth seventeen seventy three the antarctic circle was crossed for the first time a memorable day in the annals of antarctic exploration shortly afterwards a solid pack was encountered and cook was forced to return to the north a course was laid for the newly discovered islands, Kerguelen, Marion, and the Crozets, and it was proved that they had nothing to do with the great southern land. In the course of his further voyages in Antarctic waters, Cook completed the most southerly circumnavigation of the globe, and showed that there was no connection between any of the lands or islands that had been discovered and the great mysterious Antarctica. His highest latitude, January thirtieth, 1774, was 71 degrees, ten minutes south cook's voyages had important commercial results as his reports of the enormous number of seals round south georgia brought many sealers both english and american to those waters and these sealers in turn increased the field of geographical discovery in eighteen nineteen the discovery of the south shetlands by the englishman captain william smith is to be recorded and this discovery led to that of the palmer archipelago to the south of them The next scientific expedition to the Antarctic regions was that dispatched by the Emperor Alexander I of Russia, under the command of Captain Thaddeus von Bellingshausen. It was composed of two ships, and sailed from Kronstadt on July fifteenth, 1819. To this expedition belongs the honor of having discovered the first land to the south of the Antarctic Circle, Peter I Island, and Alexander I Land. The next star in the Antarctic firmament is the British seaman James Weddell, he made two voyages in a sealer of one hundred sixty tons, the Jane of Leith, in 1819 and 1822, being accompanied on the second occasion by the cutter Beaufoy. In February 1823 Waddell had the satisfaction of beating Cook's record by reaching a latitude of seventy-four degrees, fifteen minutes south, in the sea now known as Waddell Sea, which in that year was clear of ice. The English firm of ship-owners, Enderby Brothers, Plays a not unimportant part in Antarctic exploration. The Enderbees had carried on sealing in southern waters since 1785. They were greatly interested not only in the commercial but also in the scientific results of these voyages, and chose their captains accordingly. In 1830, the firm sent out John Briscoe on a sealing voyage in the Antarctic Ocean with the brig Tula and the cutter Lively. The result of this voyage was the sighting of Enderby Land. In latitude sixty-six degrees, twenty-five minutes south, longitude forty-nine degrees, eighteen minutes east. In the following year Adelaide, Bisco, and Pitt Islands, on the west coast of Graham Land were charted, and Graham Land itself was seen for the first time. Camp, another of Enderby's skippers, reported land in latitude sixty-six degrees south, and about longitude sixty degrees east. In 1839 yet another skipper of the same firm, John Ballany, in the schooner Eliza Scott, Discovered the Baliny Islands. We then come to the celebrated French sailor Admiral Jules Sebastien Dumont d'Urville. He left Toulon in September 1837 with a scientifically equipped expedition in the ships Astrolabe and Zelay. The intention was to follow in Waddell's track and endeavor to carry the French flag still nearer to the pole. Early in 1838, Louis Philippe Land and Joinville Land were discovered and named. Two years later we again find Durville's vessels in Antarctic waters, with the object of investigating the magnetic conditions in the vicinity of the South Magnetic Pole. Land was discovered in latitude 66 degrees, 30 minutes south, and longitude 138 degrees, 21 minutes east. With the exception of a few bare islets, the whole of this land was completely covered with snow. It was given the name of Adelie Land, and a part of the ice barrier lying to the west of it was called Côte-Clarie on the supposition that it must envelop a line of coast. The American naval officer, Lieutenant Charles Wilkes, sailed in August 1838 with a fleet of six vessels. The expedition was sent out by Congress, and carried twelve scientific observers. In February 1839, the whole of this imposing Antarctic fleet was collected in Orange Harbor in the south of Tierra del Fuego, where the work was divided among the various vessels. As to the results of this expedition, it is difficult to express an opinion. Certain it is that Wilkesland has subsequently been sailed over in many places by several expeditions. Of what may have been the cause of this inaccurate cartography, it is impossible to form any opinion. It appears, however, from the account of the whole voyage, that the undertaking was seriously conducted. Then the bright star appears, the man whose name will ever be remembered as one of the most intrepid polar explorers, and one of the most capable seamen the world has produced, Admiral Sir James Clark Ross. The results of his expedition are well known. Ross himself commanded the Erebus, and Commander Francis Crozier, the Terror. The former vessel, of three hundred seventy tons, had been originally built for throwing bombs. Her construction was therefore extraordinarily solid. The Terror, three hundred forty tons, had been previously employed in Arctic waters, and on this account had been already strengthened. In provisioning the ships, every possible precaution was taken against scurvy with the dangers of which Ross was familiar from his experience in Arctic waters. The vessel sailed from England in September 1839, calling at many of the Atlantic islands, and arrived in Christmas harbour, Kerguelen Land, in the following May. Here they stayed two months, making magnetic observations, and then proceeded to Hobart. Sir John Franklin, the eminent polar explorer, was at that time Governor of Tasmania, and Ross could not have wished for a better one. Interested as Franklin naturally was in the expedition, he afforded it all the help he possibly could. During his stay in Tasmania Ross received information of what had been accomplished by Wilkes and Dumont-d'urville in the very region which the Admiralty had sent him to explore. The effect of this news was that Ross changed his plans, and decided to proceed along the 170th meridian east, and, if possible, to reach the magnetic pole from the eastward. Here was another fortuitous circumstance in the long chain of events if ross had not received this intelligence it is quite possible that the epoch-making geographical discoveries associated with his name would have been delayed for many years on november twelfth eighteen forty sir john franklin went on board the erebus to accompany his friend ross out of port strange are the ways of life there stood franklin on the deck of the ship which a few years later was to be his deathbed. little did he suspect as he sailed out of hobart through storm bay the bay that is now wreathed by the flourishing orchards of Tasmania, that he would meet his death in a high northern latitude on board the same vessel in storms and frost. But so it was. After calling at the Auckland Islands and at Campbell Island, Ross again steered for the south, and the Antarctic Circle was crossed on New Year's Day, 1841. The ships were now faced by the ice-pack, but to Ross this was not the dangerous enemy it had appeared to earlier explorers, with their more weakly constructed vessels. Ross plunged boldly into the pack with his fortified ships, and taking advantage of the narrow leads, he came out four days later, after many severe buffets, into the open sea to the south. Ross had reached the sea, now named after him, and the boldest voyage known in Antarctic exploration was accomplished. Few people of the present day are capable of rightly appreciating this heroic deed, this brilliant proof of human courage and energy. With two ponderous craft, regular tubs according to our ideas these men sailed right into the heart of the pack which all previous polar explorers had regarded as certain death it is not merely difficult to grasp this it is simply impossible to us who with a motion of the hand can set the screw going and wriggle out of the first difficulty we encounter these men were heroes heroes in the highest sense of the word it was in latitude sixty nine degrees fifteen minutes south and longitude one hundred and seventy six degrees fifteen minutes east that ross found the open sea on the following day the horizon was perfectly clear of ice what joy that man must have felt when he saw that he had a clear way to the south the course was set for the magnetic pole and the hope of soon reaching it burned in the hearts of all then just as they had accustomed themselves to the idea of open sea perhaps to the magnetic pole itself the crow's nest reported high land right ahead this was the mountainous coast of South Victoria land. What a fairyland this must have seemed to the first voyagers who approached it. Mighty mountain ranges with summits from seven thousand to ten thousand feet high, some covered with snow and some quite bare, lofty and rugged, precipitous and wild. It became apparent that the magnetic pole was some five hundred miles distant, far inland, behind the snow-covered ridges. On the morning of january twelfth, they came close under a little island and ross with a few companions rowed ashore and took possession of the country they could not reach the mainland itself on account of the thick belt of ice that lay along the coast the expedition continued to work its way southward making fresh discoveries on january twenty eighth the two lofty summits Mount Erebus and Mount Terror were sighted for the first time the former was seen to be an active volcano from which smoke and flames shot up into the sky it must have been a wonderfully fine sight this flaming fire in the midst of the white, frozen landscape. Captain Scott has since given the island, on which the mountains lie, the name of Ross Island, after the intrepid navigator. Naturally there were great expectations on board. If they had penetrated so far south, there might be no limit to their further progress. But as had happened so many times before, their hopes were disappointed. From Ross Island, as far to the eastward as the eye could see, there extended a lofty, impenetrable wall of ice to sail through it was as impossible as sailing through the cliffs of dover ross says in his description all they could do was to try to get round it and then began the first examination of that part of the great antarctic barrier which has since been named the ross barrier the wall of ice was followed to the eastward for a distance of two hundred fifty miles its upper surface was seen to be perfectly flat the most easterly point reached was longitude one hundred and sixty seven degrees west and the highest latitude, seventy-eight degrees, four minutes south. No opening having been found, the ships returned to the west, in order to try once more whether there was any possibility of reaching the magnetic pole. But this attempt soon had to be abandoned on account of the lateness of the season, and in April, 1841, Ross returned to Hobart. His second voyage was full of dangers and thrilling incidents, but added little to the tale of his discoveries. On February 22, 1842, the ships came in sight of the barrier, and following it to the east, found that it turned northeastward. Here Ross recorded an appearance of land in the very region in which Captain Scott, sixty years later, discovered King Edward VII's land. On December 17, 1842, Ross set out on his third and last Antarctic voyage. His object this time was to reach a high latitude along the coast of Louis-Philippe land, if possible or, alternatively, by following Weddell's track. Both attempts were frustrated by the ice conditions. On sighting Joinville land, the officers of the Terror thought they could see smoke from active volcanoes, but Ross and his men did not confirm this. About fifty years later, active volcanoes were actually discovered by the Norwegian Captain C. A. Larsen in the Jason. A few minor geographical discoveries were made, but none of any great importance. This concluded Ross's attempts to reach the South Pole a magnificent work had been achieved and the honour of having opened up the way by which at last the pole was reached must be ascribed to ross end of part 1 of chapter 1 of volume 1 of the south pole